0: Hello and welcome to the podcast Are We Nearly There Yet? My name's Professor Andrew Sherry, and I'm interested in people's journeys to discover who they are and what they're made to do. We can all learn something from other people's stories, so join me on another adventure.
1: Being convinced that a course of action is the right one is to is to question it and if I have doubts or aren't sure, don't feel it is, then question a bit more and probably on some occasions not do something as a result.
0: Today I'm talking to Tom Greatrex, who is the chief executive of the Nuclear Industries Association and a former shadow energy minister from 2011 to 2015. Tom's a spokesperson for nuclear energy and electricity market reform. Has been involved in shaping energy policy at many points over his varied career. He lives in Oxfordshire near Cullum. is married to Laura, and they have twin daughters, Katie and Jessica, who are eleven. Welcome, Tom, and thank you for joining me.
1: Hi, Andrew. Nice to be with you,
0: Tom. You grew up in the southeast in Ashford in Kent, uh, growing up in Tunbridge Wells. Tell us a little bit about what you were like as a youngster.
1: Well, I am. Yeah, I was born in Ashford, and uh, when I was about, I think eight or nine, we moved across from East Kent to West Kent, and so then grew up in between Tunbridge and Tunbridge Wells. Um, So, um, a very an area, I suppose, which is very traditional, conservative, um, white, middle class. You know, not very diverse. All of those sorts of things. Um, And in its own terms, I was probably always or I think I was and talking to people since I moved away from there was always a bit of a rebel um I'm never quite sure where this quite came from but I was always somebody who uh liked to challenge authority or take sometimes probably out of bloody mindedness take a contrary position and you know question things and argue things um I can't really pinpoint exactly when that started, but I do remember, for example, being at towards the end of primary school and um, there being, it's just how ridiculous this is, it was sports day um, and we're all being told that we we had to be in the, the egg and spoon race or sack race or something like that. And I asked why, why did we all have to do it? Why was it necessary for me to be getting a sack or... Hold a hold a wooden spoon with a with a hard boiled egg on it, um, and I will always remember the reaction of the teacher. And then I had to go to see the head teacher, sort of as a res- as a result of my insolence, was sort of just incredulity that why was somebody questioning what you should be doing? And I always think you know everything I've done in my life since and continue to do, there is a huge value actually in questioning and challenging and testing things. Um, and for some reason it's something i think i've just had in me always and that sort of manifested itself on the very early and i think everything i've done and probably almost any decision i've made in my life has significant ones have probably had an element of of doing exactly that
0: so it sounds like as you went into secondary school you may have been a bit of a handful you know from the teachers perspectives how how was that sort of related and were there any particular teachers that responded positively to that questioning challenging attitude
1: well at the time I didn't think so I mean I went to a grammar school so the part of Kent where I grew up we still had grammar schools so we still had the 11 plus um, and I went went through that and went to that school we had a, a school magazine an official school magazine that came out once a term that was very dry and dull and was basically a prospectus for potential parents and that sort of thing And I was part of a small group of people who decided when we were in the fifth year that we would write an alternative school magazine. And uh, we sort of did it as probably, probably terrible. But I do really remember that um, there were some teachers, I think, who were quite sort of quietly encouraging of us doing that, Um, you know. So they might have been in this quite authoritative, very traditional environment, but they didn't mind. And thought it was probably quite good and good for our, those of us that are involved, be creative. And we printed it and sold it. I remember the first one writing an article about discrimination against homosexuality. Now, this was at a time pre-equal age of consent. You know, it was something that was probably still very rarely talked about and certainly not in a traditional Kent all boys grammar school. Um, and I later find out, found out because I went back to present prizes at the school years and years later, and there were one or two teachers that were still there because they'd been young teachers at that point when I was there and they were sort of, you know, still there. And a couple of them rem- remembered some of those things they'd been involved in, and actually, um, you know, that's why I think, that while they might have felt, or they, I might have got the impression at the time that they weren't very pleased about it, actually they thought it was a very healthy thing. So,
0: And it sort of starts to explain why your direction of travel happened after school because you went to the london school of economics uh, in london um what was your motivation for that had you always thought about going into politics and that side of things to change things and push things that you felt were not right and was that part of that journey or was it something else
1: well i had always i had for a long time thought about politics i've been a i joined the labor party when i was 15, again, in Tunbridge Wells, People's Republic of Tunbridge Wells. It's not exactly a socialist hotbed. And um, although I later found, because when I moved around the country and did different jobs, that actually one constituency Labour Party is not much different from the other. You've got the same types of characters. So I was always interested in it. And I think I was probably drawn towards the Labour Party, partly as the result and reaction to being in a very conservative in all senses part of the world. And then I I went to LSE um because of partly its political um reputation or the fact that it's and uh you know the nature of the of the university being a bit different not not a campus university and you know all those sorts of things but the irony is despite saying I wanted to get as far away from the southeast of England when I went to university ended up going you know 40 miles away an hour on the train um or less than an hour on the train and that's that's how I ended up at LSE
0: so, so you arrived uh, at LSE. I'm sort of imagining you really finding that a stimulating, positive experience because all of a sudden, I imagine you're encouraged to question things, to think for yourself. Did you find it an easy transition, or was it? Uh, were there other things that were difficult for you?
1: I do remember very much first time at arriving at the halls of residence with my stuff in this little room, you know, with a bed and a sink and a desk. And it took me probably a few weeks to sort of adjust to the fact that I was, if I didn't get up in the morning, there wouldn't be anyone telling me, you know, and I probably for a few weeks quite enjoyed not doing very much. And it was a very social, you know, social experience. And I don't think I, I was that, that great a student for the first year, if I'm being completely frank about it, because I was learning and exploring and developing other aspects of early days of being independent. properly independent and I got involved in various different bits of student politics when I was at LSE um, as plenty of people do. I found that really interesting because I went from an environment where I was the only person who was vaguely left-wing or one of a very small number in my sort of school and home environment to um, finding myself being actually quite a lot more right-wing than a lot of other people because suddenly there are all these people who are much more left-wing than I was and I didn't and I found myself finding myself sort of thinking I was more in the middle of a spectrum rather than at one end
0: of it. That was I was going to say, you know, did you find yourself questioning them as much as you'd been questioning the right-wing side of things? You started questioning the left-wing side of things.
1: I did. I mean, on, on my sort of voyage of discovery, I remember going to one or two meetings. of the LSE was very, very political. You know, that back in these times, I don't know if it's the same now, but things like the Revolutionary Communist Party, for example, which must have been tiny, um, but they paid for people to do master's, uh, you know, degrees at LSE, and their socialist workers Party did the same thing, partly because they were that's where they wanted to have active student groups that were all part of, you know, their push and, you know, the revolution that was going to be around the corner and everything else. Um, when you look back, they're all completely fanciful, but I did go to a few of those meetings, and some of it, I remember one which was, I can't remember the SWP or or Revolutionary Communist Party meeting, but I went to on campus when um, it was, um, uh, it was about, this was a time when Conservative Party government and I think it was student grants were in the process of being abolished or being massively reduced and you're starting to go to loans. It was that sort of time. And I had things like, you know, there was a Kenneth Clark who was the Education Secretary came and he was pelted with eggs I think it was as he came into the university and there was a you know an occupation of a building and all these sorts of things which happen at universities and happened a lot of universities at that time and before um and I remember going to one of these meetings where somebody had sort of got up and said you know and what we need to do is we need to dress like the workers and I was thinking what are you talking about what has that got to do with anything and dress like the workers and I was with someone who was who's you know who's Grandfather, I think, had been a docker in Liverpool, and he said to me, "Yeah, if I want to dress like my granddad, he'd be wearing a collar and tie every day because that's what he did. You know, even though he was a docker, you know, and these pictures of people at football and everything else. And it, it was just this. It, it, I think it brought out to me the difference between sort of very idealised political positions, which get absurd, and understanding what the realities of politics are. If you think politics is about changing things and doing things in a democratic system Um, and that was really helpful in my personal journey I suppose of, of why I would more be in the sort of practical electoral end of politics as opposed to you know sort of ideological politics where there's not very much relation to the real world.
0: So do you think, I mean, I'm really interested in this because sometimes I wonder whether there's an approach, which is how can I make a positive change? And it's a sort of forward leaning approach. And then there's another approach, which is we need to tear everything up. You know, we're anti this and we're anti that sort of thing. So there's always like a positive approach and maybe a more negative bias. Did you find yourself much more on that sort of positive leaning side of things or were there things that you could see really clearly? that you did want to change and you did want to fight and demonstrate against and all those sorts of uh, that sort of approach?
1: Um, Yeah I mean I think at that time you know so we're sort of in the early 1990s so um, you know I think my attitudes to that had significantly been shaped by the fact that I've been for a couple of years an active member of the Labour Party at that point and the Big thing at that point was, I mean, I joined the Labour Party in 1991, I think, so before the 1992 election, uh, which Labour lost. And so the big sort of thing then was about, well, we've had a Conservative government since 1979, you know, a long time. Um, lots of uh, consequences of that. And some might argue they're positive and some might argue they're negative. But in, to my mind, there were things that needed to change and that it needed a, you know, a new government. So the energy and focus, I think, was, because of the circumstances at the time, were driven more towards uh, that active politics to get a different government, a better government in my eyes. Um, maybe if I if had been 10 years, 10, 12 years younger, and we were talking about the time at which possibly, you know, decisions about, for example, whether or not to go to war with Iraq were being taken under a Labour government, quite possibly I might have found myself in a very different position in those sort of formative years. But in my formative years, it it was about a change of government and the opportunities that could bring. And it was very it was very focused on that. So I did things like, you know, I was an active party member and would do all the leafleting and canvassing, all those things you'd do. And I saw that as much more relevant and important and practical than being in sort of meetings on campus talking about whether we should dress like the workers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's really interesting. And so um after LSE you you did sort of take you know closer steps and and you started working with um Scottish opposition chief whip uh, Donald Dewar uh, prior to the 97 election. Tell us a little bit about that time and what you sort of learned about perhaps yourself but also about working with others or influencing others because I guess that was part of what the role was.
1: Yeah so this was the year so I graduated in 1996 and I was very fortunate that um, before I graduated I knew the job I was going to do and the reason for that was that I being in London I'd sort of as a number of people do I'd been a voluntary sort of uh, researcher one day a week in parliament um, because I was in central London and you know the opposition parties don't get much by the way of resource and even more so then, um, any help you could get from students to do things. And this was mostly pre-email age, I think. So lots of stuff was literally photocopying things and stuffing envelopes, you had to do that a lot. So I was sort of in and around doing that sort of stuff. And an opportunity arose uh, to work in the Opposition Whip's office. And this was the last year before the election and people who might recall back the 97 election recall back that time, uh, the John Major government didn't have a majority, technically, because there were people that had been issues around Europe and people that had been sort of chucked out and whenever there was a by-election, there were more frequently in those days than we have them now, they would lose it. and So whether it's Labour or Liberal Democrats winning in traditional Conservative seats and whenever there was a by-election, and so basically they didn't have a majority. Um, and so being in the whip's office which was all about numbers and uh, parliamentary procedure and votes and you know defeating the government uh, in a situation where there isn't a majority was really really exciting and interesting because you know you had to get everybody there and you try to do parliamentary ambushes so an amendment on something and you know try and keep quiet how many people you had around and then suddenly call a vote and out of the shadows came all these people who have been told to go and be quietly in their offices for the rest of the day and you know I learned a lot then about yeah in politics politics attracts people who have lots of strong opinions about lots of things no political party can completely accommodate everybody's opinion you know I don't think there's anybody in a political party that would agree 100% with every single aspect of every bit of a party's platform there'll be areas where they think they you know should go further or you know, and you campaign internally for things and you push different agendas, but it only works if ultimately you have a cohesion that you come together to do things. And that's what political parties are there for. And that amalgamation, sometimes people say, you know, I think that's selling out or compromise for the sake of it. But actually, that's how you can affect the most change. And that period, I learned a lot about that from seeing people, you know, you had Tony Benn was around in the parliamentary Labour Party, as well as Tony Blair, you know, and everybody in between, um, but all understood that actually the, uh, the necessity of being able to defeat a government and to help to push it towards electoral defeat that we knew was going to be coming at some point in the next few months meant that you did. You got behind things and you, you know, you voted in that way and you, and you worked as a cohesive unit. And that's when I think political parties are at their strongest and most effective.
0: So then you went on and you worked as a, a GMB union official for five years. So that must have been quite a change, certainly a change of environment for you. Tell us about that move and perhaps how it stretched you in different ways.
1: Yeah, so what happened was after the 1997 election, I became a what's called a special advisor, which is sort of a political appointee in government. In the government then, as opposed to opposition, whip's office um, for a while, and there's a guy who's now again Chief Whip for the Labour Party called Nick Brown, who had been Donald Dewar's deputy. Donald Dewar became Secretary of State for Scotland. I stayed working in the Whip's Office working for him. Then there was a reshuffle, as often happens, and he got moved to what was then called the Ministry of Agriculture. And I went with him because special advisors tend to go with the ministers. And I did that for a while. <clears throat> and it was quite interesting, but it wasn't anything that I had a you know, real passion for, to be, to be frank. I'm not really, you know, aspects... Food policy and various other things were interesting, but it wasn't wasn't where my great passion was. So um, I took an opportunity to, to move on, having done that for a couple of years in um, and went to work for the GMB. Um, so the GMB is a big general union, lots of people across lots of industries. It's organised basically on a regional basis, and I was in the London region. Um, and I went to be a sort of partly a political liaison officer I think we called it so um, because the GMB is affiliated to the Labour Party you know so all the policy making processes of the party and also the GMB like every other union has activists um, involved in workplaces but some of them are also there are political elements to that so managing those relationships and trying to work with the MPs that were in our area and push issues with them when we needed to and all that sort of stuff but I did that for a little while and I became very clear that I wanted to do more. And so I moved into, as well as that, being what in union terms are called an industrial officer, which basically meant divorced from anything to do with party politics or political involvement, looking after people in working for particular companies or sets of companies. So you're really dealing with. Uh, workplace issues and having to deal with employers and at times potential disputes be that individual disputes or you know trying to negotiate um, issues around uh, wages or changes that might be made to pensions and all that sort of stuff and having to have an understanding of um, you know the legal framework you were working in and the cultural framework and that was very very different very different you know i Although I worked for the London Region, GMB is a an anomalous, anomalous sort of um, regional boundary. So London Region included what you call now mostly East Anglia and the Home Counties. So, for example, I remember having to go to a place called Lowestoft, which is sort of one of the eastern easternmost towns in in the in in England in the UK. I think, um, uh, and Lowestoft, interesting place, um, had quite a lot of people involved in um, uh, working in the energy sector for the sort of uh, gas fields that are offshore gas. Um, People think about the North Sea, they think about Aberdeen, but there's the Southern North Sea as well, and a lot of that was in that sort of area. And having to go to talk to and meet members of a union branch who were thinking, what is this little... I was about 24 at that time. What's this sort of little like from London coming out you know suspicious firstly because you're coming from london suspicious secondly because you know wearing a suit because that's what you did <laughs> suspicious thirdly for um <clears throat> being obviously <clears throat> quite a lot younger than them and how the hell could he be you know representing us or what does he know about this and and it, it taught me a lot about the need to and ways in which you can build trust and confidence amongst people in you um despite whatever first impressions might be and what it taught me most of all was that you do that by being <clears throat> diligent and honest and clear and people will respect even if they disagree with you if you're clear about things and honest about why you think that's the most appropriate course or why that's most likely to be the most successful course as opposed to what you sort of witnessed a little bit in trade union world, which is people saying what they think they want to hear, be that your members or sometimes the management or the people that are involved in the negotiations and trying to play them one off against another. And I sort of observed that a little bit and you could see that nearly always gets comes unstuck. You've got to be very, very skillful to get away with that. And so um it's much better ultimately to be to be clear and honest and about what you think and the assessment you make and why you make that assessment and you get more respect that way. And that's something which I didn't really hadn't really properly appreciated before then or learnt, learnt about. And it's something which I found incredibly valuable in all the things I've done since.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's really interesting that isn't it? Because it is about being authentic and 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 almost making a case that you can defend but also I suppose in a slightly dispassionate way so that you, you, you use the logical side of your brain and the emotions, you try and manage a little bit, you know, to do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you, I always think that you have to, you have to find, you know, if, if you're negotiating or trying to find an agreement on behalf of a group of people with an authority, you know, and in that case it'd be the company. Um, You have to learn about how you present your case and you have to learn about how what you might ideally want isn't going to be deliverable or possible. So where can you find between the, you know, between those different, those different extremes or not extremes, but those different, those different um, uh, positions. Um, And that's something which, again, looking at it now, 20 years later, um, is an incredibly important thing to be able to do, I think probably in almost any environment you're in, if you actually want to achieve things. And I think the way in which a lot of debate happens now, and I think there's a big, big part of this is the impact of social media and people constructing their own echo chambers, is that that sort of absolutism becomes you know, much more common and people are less naturally um, cautious about it. And I, I mean, I, I, you know, as guilty as anybody else find myself sometimes falling into that trap, you know, particularly on social media, you know, having a discussion about the merits of, you know, nuclear versus CCS or whatever it might be that actually you sometimes can find yourself in a very, very, you know, black and white strident position when, when you step back and think about it, you know, that isn't likely to ever be the reality.
0: It is really interesting because the challenge that, you know, often comes, you know, is, of course, you would say that, wouldn't you?
1: Yeah.
0: And actually having the ability to step back from that position a little bit and look at it more objectively and, in, you know, with a wider perspective. And that's the value of diversity as well in all of these discussions and all of these different perspectives, because it, it makes you ask the question why if you're not asking yourself.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: absolutely. Yeah. So I'm going to take you forward a little bit to where you uh, were selected as a Scottish Labour Party candidate and you ran for election and you you were successful. Um, Tell us a little bit about that moment and how it felt for you, because, you know, you're working really hard for a particular outcome. And it it is personal, isn't it? Because, you know, you're up for election and people are either voting for you or if they're not voting for you, they're voting for your opponent. So how did you cope with that personally?
1: It was, I mean, it was very different and quite hard to get to grips with. I mean, I wasn't a candidate for very long before an election. So um, back in 2010, in the early part of 2010, there were a whole number of quite often long-standing MPs that stood down. And that was partly uh, because of, you know, there was the um, expenses scandals. And even if people weren't actually directly caught up in it, I think quite a lot of people felt it would you know, become a very, very toxic environment and people who were getting maybe towards the end of the time decided, well, that was a point to stop because they didn't, didn't like it and it got very, very nasty and aggressive in lots of ways. Um, so there's a big change in 2010, particularly in Scotland, not party, exactly the same people, parties won each seat in 2010 than the previous election, but in people. And so there was a big group of, of new people in Scotland, and I I was but I was only adopted as a candidate in I think February, and the election was in May, so not very long at all. I wasn't a candidate for a long period of time. I only became the candidate because I lived locally, uh, in Rutherglen. Uh, well, I lived in Canberra's Land, but in just outside Glasgow. Um, and when it came to my predecessor standing down, the local party of which I was a member, um, were not keen on having someone from Glasgow, which is only five miles away, but you know, Lanarkshire and Glasgow are not the same place and they deeply resented any sort of feeling that it was. So the great irony is that they chose someone who was from 400 and something miles away with a very, very different accent because they were a the local candidate, but that was me. So, um, and it, you know, as soon as you become a candidate, it is about you. So, you know, having been used to, uh, you know, writing things or doing literature or delivering stuff or you know preparing messages and all that sort of stuff and then having other people helping you do it but it was, it was your face or your name on it um it took it took a little bit to sort of but there was a bit of adjustment to that and most particularly when it actually came to the election and the election night you sort of or election day actually I remember going to vote and it feels really weird voting for yourself almost as though you shouldn't really do it you know, because there's a joy, and you know, it did feel very, very strange. Um, and when I when I got elected, I had a majority of twenty one thousand and two. I you know, say, so, well, I know the two—that's me and Laura. So, or at least I assume it is. I hope it is. Um, she never told me she didn't vote for she didn't vote for anybody else. But um, uh, and then you know, when you get announced and making a sort of victory speech um, on the uh, at the count, when you're supposed you're supposed to basically there's a Form into it, you thank your opponents, you thank your agent. Uh, if you're in someone coming in new, you thank your predecessor um, and say a few words about something, your campaign team. And, and I was, even though I've been a candidate for a while, I, to be frank, at that point in 2010, it changed by 2015, but in 2010, it would have been uh, massively a massive, massive shock if Labour didn't win that constituency. You know, it'd all it'd been Labour since sort of uh, the 19, 1960s I think um, and so uh, but even despite all of that I was unused to and therefore a bit nervous and uh, got up and did that speech and I remember people saying to me afterwards you look like you'd like you look like you' were at a funeral or you were in mourning because I, I didn't smile so I looked like I don't know what it was, but I think it was probably about, you know, trying to concentrate on making sure I said the things I needed to say that I didn't uh, give any impression of being happy or enjoying it or thinking that uh, at all, at all. I just looked like, you know, it was sort of frozen in sort of, I don't it wasn't quite fear, but as though it was, it was a very serious time. So I was going to be very serious. And, um, right.
0: Right. But well, presumably you were happy. um...
1: oh yeah absolutely yeah no (laughs) i was i was delighted to uh to get elected and um uh i I had somebody who worked in parliament so i knew a bit about it but very very different being a member of parliament as opposed to working in and around it
0: Yeah, um, yeah
1: massively enjoyed enjoyed the uh impact of you know personal impact of being elected and you know doing all the things you have to do when you are a member of parliament
0: yeah yeah and so, then, then, a couple of years later, you were made shadow head, uh, energy minister. Yeah. And we were talking earlier that the, the Waitman review had just come out um, following the Fukushima nuclear accident. At that time, so just tell us about that moment when you had to uh, when you were in the uh, in Parliament. And...
1: Well, what what happens with reasonable reasonably uh, significant announcements is often there is a what's called an oral statement in parliament where the minister responsible will get up and announce to parliament something the government is doing or it's being done on the government has asked to happen um and then the opposition uh, front bench get up and respond to it maybe ask a couple of questions you know this is it only takes like two or three minutes but it's a sort of a set piece thing that happens um well i've been in parliament just over um or just under a, a year by the time i well, I was, I was on the front bench as a shadow Scotland minister for a bit, but then when there was a reshuffle, um, became uh, shadow energy minister, which was an area that I'd mm. been really interested in and been involved in some of my previous uh, work in, um, in the GMB. And then uh, uh, when I was a uh, special the second time in the Scotland office. So I was interested in it. Um, but it was, I can't remember the day of the week. I think it might have been a Thursday And on a Thursday, quite often, if there aren't votes on a Thursday in Parliament, MPs will go back to their constituencies unless they have to be there um, when this oral statement was made. So I think it was because it was a Thursday anyway. The Shadow Secretary of State, it was Caroline Flynn at the time, wasn't there. So I had to respond to the Mm. statement. And you get about um, an hour's notice of what the statement says. So you get a by convention the opposition get given sight of the statement so you can read it and then try and think about what your questions are and you know then get up and sort of ask the questions and make your points and on on something like that it was quite it was quite difficult in the sense there was it's not a straightforward you know government versus opposition Mm -mm. debate actually you know this was something that was you know much more significant than that um and frankly there wasn't a huge amount you could disagree with what the government i think it's chris Hume was his secretary of state at that time had decided what was going to happen which was um a very responsible position to take and quite acted quite quickly um uh, and i think actually that has it was i think the, the value of that decision being taken in the way it was when it was done and then the review that came afterwards and the thoroughness of that test of times probably showed how important it was to do that as opposed to what happened in other European countries um as a sort mm. of response and reaction to Fukushima so um but it was incredibly incredibly nerve-wracking doing that from the front bench on a subject which despite my interest I knew next to nothing about um, and you know when I was shadow energy minister which I did unusually I did it for four years usually people do a particular shadow portfolio yeah. a bit like ministers for a year then there's a reshuffle and you do something else um, I remember though i i I got that that post um and I was asked roughly a year later when they were coming up to reshuffle time, did I want to go and do something else and I said I didn't because I wanted to I was enjoying it and wanted to carry on being involved in it um and then two years later, I was asked again, and I was sort of the suggestion was it's never quite this explicit, but you know would you be interested in being in the shadow cabinet so promoted effectively. And I remember I said, no, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to stay, if I could, I wanted to stay doing energy because it was, you know, it was a subject that's got lots of different aspects to it, quite complicated. I thought, I felt at that time, I'd sort of mastered some of the detail and understood it enough to be able to make a good case on it. Um, Only to discover after I'd left Parliament that actually... So, you know, my reputation amongst my peers in parliament was as somebody who was good on the detail and knew the subject. Right. Actually, my understanding of any aspect of energy was painfully superficial when you look back on it now. Mm, mm, mm. You know, and that's a wider challenge, I think, is that be that shadow ministers, ministers, MPs who have got a constituency interest in something, you've got a hundred and one things to sort of be on top of. And so the ability to be able to have any detailed knowledge of something, even if you'd done the same thing for four years, so you had a bit of time and you felt like you'd sort of understood a bit of it is really, really challenging. Yeah. And those of us who are now in positions where you have to interact with and communicate with people in those positions, it's something I don't think we always appreciate. You know, it's not because MPs are stupid or not interested um, Uh, that they might not you know jump on every aspect of the detail that you sort of in your world because of what you're doing every day you assume everybody has and if you're in a bubble most people do but actually and these people are quite significant in decisions that are being made they won't necessarily because they've got to know all about education and health and every other issue in their constituency and immigration and all sorts of things all at once in a very demanding environment and you don't necessarily always appreciate that.
0: No. And, and that ability to communicate a few things really clearly, either in a question and a statement or, or in a written form is so important because it's not about the length of the report necessarily, is it? That, that people write. It's about the clarity of the summary.
1: It is. And I think this is something that I think in our industry, the nuclear industry um, is a real challenge because hmm. you know, we're talking quite often about things which are, or can be, technical or complex. Um, and there is also, because of the nature of it, um, and this is also true more widely in energy as well, uh, you know, the the um, feeling of a need to be absolutely precise, which means inevitably there are caveats to things, And then it becomes more complicated and longer and harder then to get that across. And I think, you know, across energy more widely, not just nuclear, but across energy more widely, that um, has made it easier for organisations and groups that campaign on a very simple but often quite misleading message to have the upper hand.
0: So in your current role uh, as CEO at the NIA, Do you find yourself, I guess when you're communicating into the world that you used to inhabit, I guess, do you find yourself being in that situation where you're emotionally tied to a particular perspective? And so immediately there will be people thinking, well, he would say that, wouldn't he, CEO of the NIA. How, How do you get that balanced view across where you've asked yourself the why question again? and challenged yourself, but around a particular perspective. And yes, you're trying to communicate and influence into policy and, and how policies worked out in practice.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is, this is really interesting. And, you know, my job and my role is to, um, or partly at least, is to be an advocate for the civil nuclear industry. Therefore, it's about what the industry does and can deliver in the, in the um, uh, furtherance of, of particular policy goals. Um, and so what I try, and I couldn't say I'm always successful, but what I try to do to sort of counteract that impression is to try to always put the bit that I know about and I'm employed to talk about in a, in a context that's relevant to the person I'm talking to. Um, so, you know, frequently and, and particularly now because it was, an, you know... election at the end of 2019 so throughout the course of most of this period of us being in lockdown we talked to a lot of MPs new MPs and I find I do find actually that I have if I'm not careful I find myself going to these meetings with an assumption that everybody you talk to is going to be anti-nuclear energy or you know deeply skeptical of it um Because I think, you know, having done this for five years, you get in sometimes, and this is a real danger, you get into a mindset where you see the sort of the voluble anti-nuclear criticism and assume it's got much more currency than it really has. Um, That's not to say there aren't people who have an impression which isn't necessarily accurate, that coloured by some of those things or flavoured by some of those things. But actually, when you get into it, you find often that, as you talk to people there is a you can see you can see when people's eyes are glazing over because you're talking too much or being getting into too much detail that just but you can also see when there's a you know body language is a great thing even if you're doing it remotely you can also see when a point is being appreciated and understood and you can see that's that someone's actually saying oh yeah that's that's a point i hadn't considered before Uh, and the best way of doing that i think i've found is by that You have to put that into the context of what someone's interested in, be that a constituency interest or be that uh, an interest, a wider interest in a policy area of which nuclear can play a part. So talking about hydrogen, for example, with people who are very interested in hydrogen because of a constituency interest, but hadn't really considered or thought that nuclear can be a part of how you produce green hydrogen um, because it doesn't get talked about very much. Or, you know, you read a document coming from the European Commission where they completely ignore it, for example. You know, So though, all those sorts of things, So it's got to be putting it into the context that makes it less about you're a salesperson for a particular thing. You're actually saying that this is an industry that can do these things, that has these impacts, uh, but it's all within this context that you, the person that you're talking to, is interested in and is relevant to their considerations of what they might or might not choose yeah. to do next.
0: Oh, That's interesting. So I'm going to take you back to when you were perhaps feeling a bit uncomfortable at your grammar school and rebelling a little bit and asking the why questions and writing articles for your, your own version of the school magazine and things. Um, what would be your advice to the younger Tom? Um,
1: I think my advice would be to try to understand And appreciate a little bit more where other people might be coming from so you know because somebody might disapprove or disagree with something you say doesn't necessarily mean that they're wrong and that's very hard thing to uh appreciate when you're you know in high dudgeon about how you're absolutely right and this is a disgrace and you know why has this not changed yet in society and It's because of all you people that won't, you know, that won't appreciate the the reality of things or, you know, my perspective. You know, people have and hold views and perspectives that are very often valid. Um, And uh, you might, they might be different from yours, but that doesn't mean you can't try to understand them a bit. And then if you do, you can probably see where there may be aspects of that that you know some factual information or a different approach might be able to get you to the point where you uh, you're able to convince somebody or change your mind or get people to think again and you know I think this is something that it's not unique is it but sometimes when you're younger and you're you know you're very passionate about things or very committed to things even if what you're passionate about is standing up to authority or questioning it Um, actually developing the, the ability to be able to have a sense of perspective and appreciating other views probably would help you make better decisions.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's good advice, Tom. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: No problem. Enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: If you've enjoyed this podcast, to help others enjoy it too, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. And don't forget to rate and review. Thank you.